Okay, well, first of all, to say a very warm welcome to everybody for this week's retreat. Yeah, it's very good to see such a, a large crowd out there. <laughs> so, as I say, very, very warm welcome. Uh, this week, as you know, was devoted primarily to the practice of what is called metta, the practice of friendliness, together with the practice of kindness. This is the main theme of the week. This is what we will be exploring in a large proportion of the meditation practices that we'll be engaging in. As some of you will know, I know a large number of you have been on retreat before, the week will consist in, it's a fairly predictable schedule. You know, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, Dharma talk, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, Dharma talk. You know, it's this kind of, this is what we'll be doing over this week. So in a way, you can just relax into the schedule. You don't have to think. Um, All we have to do is just engage in the practices and see what happens for you. To practice with a kind of open heart and open mind, to see what arises for you in the course of this week. As you will know, this retreat is conducted, as are virtually all retreats at Gaia House, in silence. Um, Keeping the silence is an important part of the practice to help you examine what's going on in your process. So we will be keeping silence throughout the week. Now the first thing to say about this, in Buddhist traditions, this silence is known as noble silence. I think this demarcates it from the kind of silences perhaps that you might have experienced in the past, uh, some of which are often not terribly noble. For example, when you're sulking, (laughs) when you don't want to speak to your partner, um, all the sorts of silences we can have. And it differs incredibly from the kind of silences that might have been imposed on us, uh, sometime again as children, which I would call punitive silence. So this is not a punitive silence, it's not a silence which is characterized by lack of nobility, it's a noble silence. And it's there for the reason of helping us to really cut out almost the distraction of what I call speaking. But as you will hear me say later on, we can never really cut that out because our minds are always speaking. Uh, They're always chattering away. So I'm only going to say a few words this evening to kind of introduce what we're doing and then we will have a short period of practice and then we will start properly in the morning. One of the things that's very, very important for holding a retreat as well as the silence is something we call precepts. Holding basically five moral, ethical precepts which allows, for, allows, in a way, the smooth unfolding of a retreat. Now, why I say that happens is because these precepts, again, are ways of helping us to inquire into dimensions of our life. They're not just for retreats, they're actually for our ordinary life. In traditional Buddhism, these are the five precepts that lay practitioners basically recite almost on a daily basis and try to adhere to in their lives. Um, We ask you to hold these precepts whilst here on retreat. Um, Unfortunately, when we see these in popular books on Buddhism, they're often done a big disservice. 
because they're never put in full form. Um, they're usually put in a form that goes something like uh, don't kill, don't steal, don't um, commit sexual misconduct, uh, don't lie, and don't take drink and drugs. And they go in that form. And actually, that sounds rather like a sort of Ten Commandments shortened down to five. Um, and it's not meant to be that at all. I just want to say a little bit about these in their fuller form, because I think you will see that they are ways of helping us to look at our moral and ethical lives. We get to examine these even on retreat, and our relationship with certain aspects of life um, come into, I think, a sort of sharper focus, often while we're on retreat. So the first precept in its full form goes like this. It says... I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. As you can see, that says what the shortened version does, which is don't kill, but it also says a lot more. And notice the way it's stated. It's a rule of training. These are what's called training precepts. We've, they're not you know, sort of absolute truths, they're things to help us in our lives to come into a relationship with others and ourselves. So to refrain from harming living beings. Well, actually, this is getting you to examine, even whilst we're here, all of your relationships of harm. So it obviously states, don't kill. So the spider, the whatever it is, the bug, you know, try and avoid squashing it. Um, and actually take a stance which is very important in practice, a stance of harmlessness. You know, this is a very, very important stance that we can take in our lives. There's a long tradition in the history of India, it's called Ahimsa, you know, the stance of harmlessness, moving through this life, doing as little as harm to others as possible. Also doing as little harm to yourself as possible as well. So the harmlessness... And the precept of not harming includes you as well. Because all the kinds of harm that we do in our lives, and this might not be killing, and probably isn't, um, but we engage in you know, gestures and thoughts and words which are often extremely unkind and extremely hurtful, hurting ourselves and often hurting others as well. So it asks you, in a sense, to look at that. Obviously, the practical thing of being on retreat is not to harm others, you know, particularly other creatures, um, so that we come into, as I say, this position of harmlessness in our life. The second precept, again, has the same formulation. It says, you know, undertake a rule of training to refrain from not you know from to refrain from taking what is not offered yeah. again, if you hear that, well, it implies obviously the don't you know the don't steal, but it implies a lot more. We often take a lot more in our lives, we take people's time, we take people's energy, we often appropriate things from our workplaces, small things, telephone calls, paper clips whatever it might be, very, very small things which we think don't matter. Well, the one thing the Buddha made us very, very aware of in this tradition was that 
in doing things repeatedly and doing things like harming or taking what is not offered, this shapes the mind. It almost is creating neural pathways in the mind, ruts in the brain, um, where it becomes easy to do these things. The more we do them, the easier it becomes. The more we do them, the less problem we think there is in doing them, in the harming or the taking what is not offered. So again, it's a useful one to examine, and it doesn't mean just kind of material things, as I sort of indicated when I started talking about this precept. It also means particularly looking at what we take from others, such as their time and their energy, um, which we can appropriate really easily, and it actually hasn't been freely offered by them. So again, this is one to bear in mind. Obviously, it has very practical things in not taking things within a Gaia house which are not offered. But I think it has this big implication in our lives of beginning to look at what we appropriate which isn't given freely in our lives. The third precept. Well, it's actually, actually the way it's usually formulated in popular books on Buddhism says a lot more about the West than it does about the precept. Um, Because it's usually translated simply as, I refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, the actual full form of it is, um, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual misconduct, which includes sexuality. The word in in the original language, or the language of the very earliest texts, is a word in in Pali, which is kamasu. Kama, probably some of you will know from the word Kama Sutra. It's the same word. It indicates any form of sensuality. Um, now, the sensuality and the expression of sensuality in a place like Gaia House might not take the form of sexual relationships. Um, we certainly hope not. But it will take the form of a lot of sensual indulgence. Um, as I've often joked about in this room, sometimes... Meditation retreats can seem like um, you know, a lot of eating interrupting by meditation periods. <laughs> so our sensuality finds an expression often in the importance of food. You know, I would actually caution you to actually observe your relationship with food because one of the things we know when you come on retreat like this... Um, distractions are cut down. We ask you in particular, you might have had this in the manager's talk, not to, you know, not to read you know, and not to take loads of notes and write whilst you're here. Again, it's not a punitive thing. It's just a way of helping you to intensify what you're doing, the process, so that we don't engage in distraction. We can see our minds clamoring um, for distraction often, when we're faced with that really difficult person called yourself. So the mind often clamors for it. And So one of the ways it searches for distraction uh, is through its sensuality. And food gains a very, very big importance on retreat. In fact, it can do in our lives. Uh, We can see the conditioned nature of our minds in response to it as we I don't know, waft the smells coming from the kitchen as they float into the meditation hall, uh, as you will no doubt experience over this week. 
Um, there's a very funny passage, actually, in a book some of you might know called Breath by Breath by Larry Rosenberg. In this book, Larry Rosenberg says that he was sitting meditating one day and he really felt his concentration was getting very, very intense. Um, his mind was becoming very, very focused. He said, until the dinner gong went. And he said he was off his seat like a rabbit out of a trap. <laughs> you know, so food looms very large, as I say, in importance whilst on retreat. So it's again, it's an instance of being able to look at our relationship with sensuality, obviously sexuality as well. Um, also our clamoring even to grasp hold of what we see, what we smell, what we hear. You know? So we can actually not just have a, what I call a sane relationship with our, sensual, you know, with our sensual faculties, but we actually have them as extremely hungry faculties. We have hungry eyes and hungry ears and certainly hungry noses and tongues. Yeah, so, as I say, watch this one. It's very, it's very interesting what happens on retreat. The fourth precept, which is a strange one, actually, considering that I've just said you know, we're going to be in noble silence for the week, because it's actually about speaking. It's, you know, undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. So that actually um, obviously implies lying. Well, we're not going to be speaking for the week, but as I kind of indicated, one of the things that we know is we very rarely shut up. Yeah. Um, as one philosopher once put it, he said we're always speaking, wherever we are. You know, We speak when we're silent, and I'm sure you will notice this over the course of this week, we speak when we're reading, and we speak when we're asleep. There's hardly any instances where we're not speaking. So it's worth looking at the quality, even of what I call our mental speech acts, even if they're not physical speech acts. What exaggeration, what stories are we telling? What's the narratives we're creating about the others who are on retreat with us? Because one of the things, again, with lack of distraction, is we will create stories. you will have a full history of somebody before you've even spoken to them. Uh, You will think you will know that person. Just watch the mind talking, elaborating, expanding, getting upset. Now often in practicalities, the practicalities of this precept, um, as it's used in traditional Asian cultures, it's often expanded into also... um, refraining from harsh speech, not just false speech, but harsh speech. So we can watch our minds again, even in silence, thinking harsh things of others. Why is that person at the front of the queue? They're always at the front of the queue. They're always getting the first bite at the vegetables or the the savoury or whatever it is. We can watch our minds thinking harsh thoughts about others. It's often expanded again into divisive speech. Yeah. Wanting to set one person against another. Now this occurs, as we know, in ordinary life quite a lot. You know, where we try to divide one person from another. So we watch the mind's tendency to want to divide, to create enmity in life, you know, rather than harmony. 
And finally, there is, well, watching the mind just gossiping. Yeah? Just gossiping, just chattering away. It's actually called idle speech. Yeah? It actually doesn't do a lot. It just sort of chunters away, um, creating again you know, just idle thoughts. Now, if we put those all together in this expansion of this particular precept, refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter, one might think there's not a lot left to say here. Yeah. Um, because actually, a lot of our speech acts fall into these categories. What we see magnified whilst we're on retreat is the tendency for our minds to do that. But it's doing it in silence rather than doing it you know, in, in you know, the ordinary world where we're speaking to others. And then finally, there's the precept. Well, actually, in Pali, it's actually, um, the word that's used actually means fermented liquors, not taking fermented liquors. Now, this gets reduced now, don't take drink and drugs. I often neglect to put the final part of it, which is actually to take substances. I think I'd probably translate it these days as to refrain from taking substances which lead to heedlessness. It's a lovely old-fashioned word, isn't it? Heedlessness. To bad behavior, basically. Bad thoughts. Actually, if we line the precepts precepts up from harming all the way down, if we listed them, if we had a whiteboard here and listed them, you know, basically what we're saying is don't take substances which will lead to all of the above. Yeah. You know, because that's actually what happens. That's what heedlessness is. It is the false speech, the taking what is not offered, the engaging in sensual misconduct, the harming of others. This is what often happens under the sway of substances which disturb the balance of the mind. Now, the Buddha wasn't a prude. I think um, you know, when you, if you ever get a chance, and some of you probably have, to look at the early texts, we can see the Buddha was no prude. He's not actually saying, well, don't take these things simply because you know, I want to put a downer on them or anything like that. The reason why he is saying this about you know, what, you know, what happens when we take substances is A, it leads to that heedlessness, to the bad behavior, but also it's actually against the very trajectory of what we're attempting to do in the meditation process, in, if you like, the, the life of the meditative way of living. The life of the meditative way is to clarify the mind, yeah, to calm the mind, to gain insight, to gain clarity, to have a degree of spaciousness in our relationship to things which are arising. Now, in taking substances like this, it goes against the very, as I say, the very trajectory of doing those things or attaining those things. It's against the very trajectory of this path. The very trajectory of the path of meditation, whatever form it is, whether it's calming meditation, insight meditation, whether it's the meditations on friendliness, such as we'll be doing this week, then all of those, all of those forms are about waking up. I might say to you, and some of you might have heard me say this before, the Buddhist path and the path of meditation, 
which is an intrinsic part of this path, is not about enlightenment. It's about waking up. This is what we're attempting to do. Wake ourselves up. And what are we waking ourselves up? Well, we're waking ourselves up from what the Buddha calls the sleep of ignorance or the sleep of confusion. I use these two words interchangeably. Our ignorance, in a sense, is expressed in our confusion about how to live our lives wholesomely, how to live our lives without creating distress for ourselves and distress for others. So if we engage in this last, you know, know, flout the precept, actually we're going against the whole process of what we're attempting to do, to wake ourselves up. Some of you will probably know that even the word Buddha just means is not an enlightened person, it means an awakened one. And what the Buddha has woken up to is the way things actually are. How they're characterized, how they actually are in this world. Not how he would like them to be, but how they are and how they manifest in their reality in this world. Now, I think as you can see, there's an inevitability about what is going to be created if we live with fantasies, and those fantasies are shattered. When the world erupts into those fantasies. When we believe, for example, that things are certain, and then uncertainty arises. Our lives seem to be going along on a sort of straightforward trajectory, and then something will come to derail us. Something will erupt in our lives. We might believe in impermanence, impermanence, and impermanence erupts into our lives and destroys that sense of certainty and safety, often, for ourselves. Now, I'll talk a lot more about these as we go through, but the one thing I think that's absolutely clear is that what we're trying to do is wake ourselves up. Now, the precepts themselves, just to conclude this part, the precepts themselves are part of that process of beginning to wake up. It's the ethical, moral basis of beginning to wake ourselves up, to take a close look, not just on retreat, but in our daily lives, in our day-to-day existences, and see, in a sense, not to beat ourselves up, because this is not what it's about, it's not to kind of think what a terrible person I am because you know, sometimes I bend the truth or sometimes I take what is not offered and so on and so forth. It's not for that purpose at all. It's actually in an awareness of what is actually going on we get the choice, the ability perhaps to choose a different way of living. A way of living, a way of living which isn't blind but actually has much more of a sense of, of living in an awakened state. This is what we're attempting to do. So that's the precepts which we ask you to observe. And as you can hear me say from, from what I've said so far, they are a way of living our lives. They're not just about retreats. And much of what I will say over the course of this week is about how we live our lives in the ordinary world, not just about sitting on cushions or walking in a slow fashion in the garden if the weather is nice. So, 
a little bit about what we'll be doing practically over this week. Practically over this week, what I want to do is introduce some of the practices and ways of doing these practices which can lead us to, in some senses, developing a great deal more friendliness in our lives. Now the word, and I'll say this much more, you know, I'll explain this much more fully as we you know, enter into the course tomorrow. What we're attempting to develop has a, you know, has a word in Pali which is the word metta. Metta is usually translated as loving kindness. This, I must say, is an appalling translation. <laughs> it doesn't mean that whatsoever. Yeah. It is one of these things that keeps getting repeated in Buddhist circles, but it doesn't mean loving kindness at all. The word actually, and just I'll do little bits of etymology occasionally as we go come across what I consider to be significant words that don't translate very well. The word metta actually is allied to another word in Pali, which actually means to befriend. Yeah. This is actually the word maitri. It means to, to befriend something. It derives from a root, and I love this. It derives from a root in Pali, which means to grow fat with friendliness. <laughs> yeah. It means to expand. Yeah, so this is what I'm encouraging you to do over the week. Grow fat with friendliness, not with food. <laughs> yeah, so this is what we're attempting to do. Now, in order to do this, we will start tomorrow uh, with a day of actually settling the mind. We will do a day, basically, of calming and concentration practice to settle the mind so that you can land here. Now, one of the things we, I'm sure, all know is that when we come on retreat like this, we don't suddenly leave all the world behind. We bring it with us, don't we? Including a lot of tiredness and a lot of distractedness. We bring a lot of the unfinished business with us that we've been engaged in, of, of families and work and home and and loved ones, and we bring them all with us. So tomorrow will be about landing and really being here and settling into some calm. I won't hold out a promissory note that you'll be all wonderfully calm by the end of the day, but we get a chance at least to engage in practice which settles the mind. During the course of the week also, we'll be engaging at least two sessions every day of what I call just mindfulness practice. Two sessions a day, one at the beginning of the day and one at the end of the day, which is actually learning to become receptive to what is arising in our minds and being able to look at what is arising out in our minds without aversion and without greed, without wishing to cling to it and without wishing to push it away. Now this is going to go on in the meta-meditations, which is forming the core, but this also helps us to gain degrees of insight. Now the way that we're going to be practicing the metta, there are two distinct ways that we can practice metta. One way of practicing it is to use it as a concentration practice. 
in the traditions. Um, this is a way of developing states of absorption. And it means basically using phrases, and we will be using phrases as well, and repeating them fairly rapidly in the course of our sessions. So in a 45-minute session, which is what most of the sessions are, there's a few half-an-hour ones, most of the sessions are 45 minutes. In a session of 45 minutes, you'll be repeating these phrases again and again and again and again. Uh, and we can gain actually quite deep states of concentration from doing it this way. It almost becomes like reciting a mantra, you know, if you know what a mantra is. A mantra, actually, the word literally means a protection for the mind. Yeah. It's that which stops the mind from straying. And just like concentration practices, there's ways of using it which hold the mind in focus. Yeah. Now, we're not going to be using it in this way. We're going to be using it as an insight practice. And so we're going to be doing something with it which is very different from the what I call rapid repetition of phrases. We're looking for what arises, in a sense, in relation to these phrases. Now, I'll talk a lot more about this in the morning, rather than try and bombard you with it at night. Uh, but this is a different way of practicing, probably even if you've done meta retreats before. Now, it's very clear that the Buddha himself saw the practices of what we call Brahma-viharas, and metta, karuna, metta, friendliness, karuna, outgoing kindliness, along with a couple of others which we're not practicing this week, which is equanimity, and of course some form of empathetic joy. He saw these as distinct paths in themselves to waking up. He saw them as ways, and I think this is, you know, personally I found this wonderful when I discovered this when I was looking deeply into the early texts and found that the way that the Buddha speaks about these practices is not as something subsidiary, something almost second class in relationship to the wisdom that we're often trying to develop, which is something possibly you may have come across in your readings or hearing other teachings, that somehow there's a kind of wisdom fixation. You know, it's about wisdom, um, it's about insight. Well, it's certainly about insight, but the Buddha says we can develop just as much insight by the practice of kindness. Yeah. This was a great wake-up call for me in hearing this, because it actually placed these practices, the friendliness and the kindness at the heart of all practice. It's that which actually took the wisdom practices, and I'll say a lot more about that word tomorrow, took the wisdom practices and saw them as being very harsh, that they needed to be softened. And what softened it was this ability to actually look at what arises in our experience, not with the harsh inner critic, but with an eye of friendliness, with an eye of kindness. This became a way of seeing the world, of coming into relationship with the world. If we look at the world today, I think we probably wouldn't, I don't think there would probably be many people out here who would say that we don't need a bit more kindness and we don't need a bit more friendliness in this world. Well, the Buddhist, Buddha's way of helping us to develop that was, in a sense, to start the charity at home by developing it towards ourselves. 
Eastern teachers, as some of you might know, when they first started teaching in the West, when they came from these various cultures such as Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Tibet, um, when they first started teaching the West, they were actually quite appalled at what they saw, which was actually most Western people didn't seem to like themselves very much. This was something... Uh, and in my training in, you know, for example, in India and Sri Lanka, um, in my training, we spent very little time actually developing metta, karuna, towards ourselves. Yeah? Because actually it wasn't taken as being a problem you know, in Eastern cultures. Now, I don't want to get romantic about it, because you know, Eastern cultures are full of problems just like our cultures, but this isn't one of them. Yeah. I have Tibetan friends and you know, South Asian friends who never stop telling me how good they are at certain things. Yeah. And this is not done in an arrogant fashion. It's just, you know, this is just very different from where the way that we often view ourselves in Western culture. You know, our best isn't good enough, you know, quite often. Who's the harshest person who speaks to you? You, probably in your life. There is something very self-lacerating about Western culture, and I think there's something historical about this, which I won't go into this evening, that we've been almost conditioned into being hyper-hypercritical. When do we want perfection? Well, right now. So there's impatience. One of the big things I've seen of teaching meditation over quite a long period of time is that there's a tremendous amount of impatience. You know, that impatience actually manifests as, you know, I can't do this, I'm no good at it. You know, that we beat ourselves up. Uh, a Sri Lankan meditation teacher, a friend of mine, unfortunately, who died a number of years ago, uh, but he always used to say to me, he said, it's terribly sad, he said, when Western people get meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> And I think he had something there. <laughs> is because it becomes yet another way of beating ourselves up. <laughs> you know, that we can't hold our minds. The amount of times, and I'm sure some of you might have even engaged in it, even if you haven't said it to another, is the amount of times I hear, I just can't keep my mind on the breath. <laughs> yeah. And therefore I'm implied is therefore I'm a failure at this. And this is not. This is not the case. Yeah. One of the things that we will learn, one of the things I'll be emphasizing, and I will shut up in a minute, I promise you. Um, one of the things we learn in the practice of meditation, if we start to approach it you know, with, with, a, with what I call kindness and friendliness, is we learn to accept what arises in our minds. It's actually a process of radical acceptance. It's actually a process of, in a way, continuously failing. And I mean that in the best possible sense. We fail to stay with the breath. And isn't that wonderful? What happens when we fail, for example, in just in mindfulness meditation, just the basic simple forms of meditation? What What do we learn when we fail to stay with the breath? We learn and gain insights into the way that our mind operates. 
we learn and we gain insights into the way that the same old anxieties and the same old fears and the same old problems just keep getting recycled. I always think of the human mind as being the perfect organic recycling machine. It's the same old crap that keeps coming up again and again and again. Now, it sounds probably very harsh, but what I'm saying is we just keep recycling it. And we start getting insights into that recycling process, what comes around again and again and again and again. And after a time, we begin to perhaps start to grow other things in our minds, direct them in other ways, ways which are more profitable and more wholesome, certainly for others and certainly for ourselves, ways of developing aspects in our lives which don't inevitably lead to something I will talk a lot about, which is what I call the problem. The problem is something which I don't actually translate these days from the Pali because there's no satisfactory translation of this out of Pali and Sanskrit, which is the word dukkha. The word dukkha. The word dukkha which covers everything on the spectrum from mild irritation to really painful states and suffering. Everything on that spectrum. The things I find unsatisfying, dissatisfying, what I want changed, all the way up to the loss of loved ones, sickness and illness and death, and all of these things. The word dukkha is a huge spectrum word, and there's no one single word we can use generally to pin it down in this way. Dukkha is something that is either there for us or it isn't. The Buddha says if we inquire into our lives, we'll probably see it's there. It's, I think, what motivates people to come to places like this. Either the actual, you know, kind of coming into conflict with the dukkha of the world, or, you know, the simple background sense of something isn't quite right in our lives. Now, I'll speak a lot about this, so I won't say much about it this evening. But this is what, if you you like, the, the problem is, and this is what we're dealing with through all the meditative practices, including the friendliness, which obviously is the theme of this particular week. Okay, well, I think to finish the evening, perhaps we ought to sit for a little while, just a short sitting, and I'll send you off to bed, and hopefully you'll be much fresher in the morning when you haven't had journeys to make and to get here. So we, with intention take our seat and what I mean by that is we come to sit intentionally to stay alert and awake attentive to whatever is going to arise in our experience both physically and mentally we are watchful and wakeful So that we pay attention to our posture because our posture is our embodied intention.
we notice how we are at in this moment. What is what is here for us, both physically and mentally. What emotions are around, what feelings. Perhaps it's the observance of tiredness after a day's journeying or however long you've spent getting here. It might be the anxiety about the week. The feeling of having left loved ones at home. Or it might be just aspects of physicality, such as the feel of the, our seats, on our cushions, on our chairs, on our kneeling stools. The touch of clothing on our bodies. The sensation that's arising in the knee or in the back. Whatever it is, we can gently turn our minds towards it, acknowledging the presence of what is there. So that we are open and receptive to what is arising both physically and mentally in our experience. And as a background to whatever is arising and passing away can be observed the feeling of the breath coming and going. We are not controlling the breath. We are just observing how it naturally rises and falls. Just that simple coming and going that can be experienced by the expansion and contraction of the chest. The movement of the abdomen. The feeling of the breath at the nostrils, at the nose, the upper lip, or even at the back of the throat. So we sit with an awareness of the whole body breathing, just 
just coming and going as not controlling it. And we might wish to focus a little bit more by using one of those places where we can feel the breath. Either the nose, the back of the throat, the expansion, contraction of the chest, or the gentle movement of the abdomen. We can use these as points of focus. So we let the mind rest on it, on the place where we experience it most vividly at any of those places. Just letting the mind rest on the movement that we experience, the movement of the breath that we experience at any one of those points of focus. So you choose where you want to rest your mind as a way of observing the breath. And it is resting the mind, it's not trying to grab hold of the breath not desperately cling to it. And of course what generally happens is at some point we will find our attention, our awareness is no longer with the breath. It's caught up with thoughts, feelings, emotions, sounds, sensations in the body. And that's not a problem. It really isn't a problem if you find your mind is no longer with the breath. So our first act of kindness, we don't propel the mind back. We note where it's gone. Where is my mind now? We note where it's gone to. And then we gently accompany 
it back with kindness, back to the breath. Allowing it to rest on the movement at your chosen spot. Until at some point again we notice it's not with the breath any longer. And we do exactly the same thing. We turn towards, we note, we acknowledge. And only then do we lead our minds back. And we do this repeatedly, as many times as we need to. And it really doesn't matter how many times that is.
Okay, just one practical thing before we go to bed. Um, in Buddhism and Buddhist practice, you'll hear me talk about this, we have five hindrances to which the modern world has had it, added a sixth. It's called the mobile phone. Um, I would encourage everybody to switch off your phones for the duration of the retreat and to use tonight, if there is unfinished business, as a time for sorting that unfinished business out and you know, if you have to contact somebody to just say, well, for the rest of the time I'm going to be on retreat for this time, you know. You can even leave a message on your phone that says, I love you, but I'm on retreat. <laughs> So I'd really encourage you to do that. Now, this is not obviously if you've got people who are vulnerable in your life to cut yourself completely off from them. You know, if you have to do that, well, that's completely understood. There is an emergency number, which I'm sure has been explained to you, and on somebody on call, it will get through to them immediately who will then get in touch with you. So this means, really does mean switching off your phone. You know, not putting it on vibrate and all the other little things that we can do with it, but actually switching it off. Having a retreat from your mobile phone, that sounds like a wonderful thing. It certainly does to me anyway. Um, so, just that very, very practical thing. Okay, and all I have to say now is rest well. And I'll see you in the morning. Good night.